You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little bitch. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Stay out of the train! I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the Call me Mr. Boy's best friend. You have no style. You Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody's having a great week in the post-quarantine world. My week was pretty slow, especially compared to the week before, so let's just drop right into the movies. This week on Two Sentence Movie Reviews of Movies I Saw in a Movie Theater, we've got three and they're all new. Zola, Escape Room Tournament of Champions, and Black Widow. Zola is an independent movie based on a series of tweets sent out in 2015 about an exotic dancer's wild weekend in Tampa, Florida with a woman she just met and that woman's boyfriend and pimp. I knew next to nothing about this movie before I went and saw it and holy crap, it's wild. It's one of those situations where if even 10% of it is true, it's still the worst weekend you've ever had and why you don't go like very far from home with someone you just met, even if they're offering you like a stupid amount of money. Highly recommend it, but be warned, there's a lot of weird looking dongs in this movie. Like one, I'm will haunt my dreams for a very long time. Next is Escape Room Tournament of Champions, which is a sequel to 2019's Escape Room. While its predecessor, and this one really too, is basically just cleaned up Saw and kind of a knockoff of Saw, just capitalizing on how millennials love an escape room, including me, not judging, I love an escape room. But this movie is just a crappier version of the 2019 movie. Like the 2019 movie was okay. This is just crap. The puzzles are harder in this movie compared to the last one, but the plot is garbage. And the climax of the film is literally the setup they did in the last film, so you knew it was leading to that the whole time, so it's like, what the hell was the point of watching this movie? They needed to think it out a lot more, which is something, you know, they don't necessarily always do in horror films, but come on. And then finally, the big, big, big release of this weekend, Black Widow. I absolutely love the MCU. It's so much fun. And for the last two years, I've been itching for a new Marvel movie. The series on Disney Plus are good. It's just not the same. It may be the newness, but for me, Black Widow is in my top three Marvel movies. But, you know, some people are super fanboy about it. I don't know the comics all that well. I just know the MCU more. And then I let my friends kind of fill me in, like, in between movies. So, like, some people were bothered about a character in the film. It didn't bother me because I had no, like, attachment to it. But the movie is full of action and comedy and serves as a fitting swan song for Scarlett Johansson's Black Widow. And I'm already planning on seeing it again next weekend. I, I had fun. And that's all I really expect for from a Marvel movie. On to this week's big topic. This week, we're discussing the feud between Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. For 10 years, the duo were the kings of comedy in the United States, appearing in movies, on the radio, on television, recording albums. If you can name it, they probably did it. So why, while they were on top of the world, did the most famous comedy duo suddenly part ways in 1956? 
Today, we're discussing their early lives, their career as partners, what led to their falling out, and what happened after. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Dean Martin was born Dino Paul Crocetti on June 7, 1917, in Steubenville, Ohio, the son of two Italian-Americans. Dino didn't speak English until the age of five, as Italian was the language spoken in his home. Dino would drop out of college his sophomore year, believing himself to be smarter than his teachers. To make money, he bootlegged liquor, served as a blackjack dealer in a speakeasy, and worked in a steel mill, you know, the regular career path of any teen. Also as a teen, he had been known to box and build himself as Kid Crochet. His prize fighting earned him a broken nose that later had to be straightened, a scarred lip, many broken knuckles, a result of not being able to afford tape used to wrap boxers' hands, and an overall just busted, bruised up body. Of his 12 official bouts, Dean would say that he, quote, won all but 11. Dino soon moved to New York to pursue a career in entertainment. His roommate there, future lounge singer Sonny King, would box with Dino in their apartment, charging people to come over to watch them fight until one was knocked out. Dino also sung in a few bands, using the stage name Dino Martini. The music career, luckily for his face, started to gain traction, unsurprising if you've ever heard his voice, and Dino worked pretty steadily for clubs and bands until the early 1940s when he was drafted into World War II. He served only 14 months, eventually being discharged due to a hernia and tried to settle down with Elizabeth Ann McDonald in Cleveland, Ohio. They were married for eight years and had four children, but Dean wasn't in Ohio long. Big opportunities were calling. Jerry Lewis was born Joseph, or Jerome depending on sources, Levitch, on March 16, 1926, in Newark, New Jersey, to a first-generation Russian-American. His father worked as an MC for vaudeville shows, and his mother was a professional pianist. Like his future comedy partner, Jerry dropped out of school at a young age, Jerry in just the 10th grade. At 15, he practiced to become essentially a professional lip syncer, a career that lasted one very bad gig at a burlesque show, then he worked as a soda jerk and an usher. Jerry also did a mime act, which got him the attention of another burlesque comedian whom looked after the still underage fellow performer at further gigs. Jerry would also try to enlist into World War II, but was denied due to a heart murmur. At 19, Jerry met his future comedy partner, 28-year-old Dean Martin, while both were performing at the Glass Hat Club in New York City. 
Jerry, a skinny goofball with a high-pitched voice, as you've heard and will hear, was immediately taken by the cool, handsome crooner. The two were fast friends and began collaborating in each other's acts. The following year, on July 25, 1946, Martin and Lewis made their debut as a double act in Atlantic City at the 500 Club. Jerry had gotten them the gig, convincing the owner of the club that Dean's singing ability would be a great substitute for the priorly scheduled singer whom had dropped out. That first gig was not good. In fact, they were so bad that the owner threatened to fire them, even though he had no other act to replace them. Their act at that time had been completely scripted, which likely made the young performers probably a little bit more wooden than if they had been more veteran. In order to fix that, the duo ditched the script and changed to improving their material at each show. Dean sang, and Martin dressed as a busboy, dropping plates, disrupting his partner's songs, and just overall making a mockery of the club. Their performances included slapstick, skits, and vaudevillian jokes to the audience's delight. Their original act culminated in Dean chasing Jerry out of the room by pelting bread rolls at him. Their success, which they credited with largely ignoring the audience and just focusing on each other at the 500 Club, led to a series of well-paying engagements along the eastern seaboard, culminating with a run at New York's Copacabana Club. Now, in addition to being a song by Barry Manilow, though the song was inspired by the hotel in Rio de Janeiro in addition to this club, yes, I googled that, the Copacabana in New York at this time was a hopping joint that hosted clientele the likes of Walt Disney, Mary Pickford, and the Ziegfeld Follies. The Copacabana loved Martin and Lewis and were overcome with laughter as Dean tried to sing and Jerry was just a full-fledged agent of chaos, doing everything in his power to disturb him. The act culminated in Dean chasing Jerry about the stage. The audience went wild. They were a hit. Aren't you overacting a little? Radio was going through some shit. Over a period in 1948 and 1949, which became known as the CBS Talent Raids, NBC had lost their two biggest shows from its Sunday lineup, the Jack Benny program and Amos and Andy, to CBS. Needing to fill that airtime, NBC recruited Martin and Lewis, whom were both relatively unknown to audiences not on the East Coast, to create a new program for the network. So yeah, they were a bit of a gamble for NBC. In five months, 
that development of what would become known as the Martin and Lewis show would cost NBC $400,000. They also had to work around the duo making their film debuts in the 1949 comedy My Friend Irma, which was based on a CBS radio show. Martin and Lewis had been hired to provide the comedic relief in the film. I doubt that was sitting well with NBC. But it was allowed in their contract. The deal they had signed with NBC in December 1948 guaranteed the pair 150 grand per year salary and a, quote, choice time slot. The program was originally scheduled to begin January 16, 1949, but it did not go on the air until April. Jerry was a bona fide workaholic, and therefore Martin and Lewis had a lot of balls in the air professionally speaking, which makes sense that it got delayed a little bit. As with their initial lounge show, Martin and Lewis needed to improve as that first radio show was not well received by critics at all, unsurprising as the duo relies quite heavily on sight gags for their comedy to play. The show struggled on for a year, gaining no sponsors, though CBS reportedly did try to poach them from NBC as well. At the end of the first year, writers Ed Simmons and Norman Lear were brought on to bump up the show quality, which did help out tremendously. While the show would improve in popularity, though never critically, and consisted of Dean singing, Jerry heckling, and was formatted as such. Dean would sing a song some verbal slapstick, a guest spot, Jerry going off the rails once more before Dean would close out the show with another song. The show was on the air from 1949 to 1953. Then a lot of stuff happened very fast and almost all at the same time for Jerry and Dean. The duo's agent had managed to get them a pretty sweet deal, especially for entertainers at this time. They received $75,000 between them for their film work, a respectable film salary in the 1950s. They also had complete control of their club, records, radio, and television appearances, and it was through these endeavors that Martin and Lewis earned millions of dollars. Martin and Lewis were also free to do one outside film a year, which they would co-produce through their own York Productions. The first of these films was At War with the Army in 1950. Also in 1950, Martin and Lewis made a deal to become one of the rotating hosts for the Colgate Comedy Hour, a comedy variety show that aired on NBC from 1950 to 1955. Martin and Lewis appeared in the sequel to the Irma film the following year, titled Irma Goes West. While they had been out west shooting the first Irma, Dean had relished being out of New York, a city he lived in out of pretty much necessity for his work. He reportedly was not a fan of tall buildings and was actually quite claustrophobic. Even when he started making that showbiz cash and could afford to live in a fancy Manhattan skyrise, Dean opted to get a unit on the third floor. L.A. was much better for him. There weren't as many tall buildings. So when the duo got a contract with Paramount Pictures to start working in the movies, I imagine Dean was thrilled for more reasons than one. Although there had been a number of hugely successful film teams before, see Laurel and Hardy, the Marx Brothers, Three Stooges, Dean and Jerry were a new kind of duo. Both were talented entertainers, of course, but the fact that they were also good buddies on and off stage took their act to another level. Lewis later offered an explanation for their success. Quote, who were Dean's fans? Men, women, the Italians. Who were Jerry's fans? Women, Jews, kids. Who were Martin and Lewis's fans? All of them. You had fans that didn't care that Lewis was on or that Martin was singing because if Dean was singing, that was Martin and Lewis. If Jerry was going nuts, that was Martin and Lewis. 
By the early 1950s, Dean and Jerry were the hottest and highest paid double act in town. And by town, I mean pretty much the entire United States. They'd gone from relative obscurity to superstardom in only five years. But cracks were slowly beginning to form in the partnership. According to a 1951 Life magazine article, while on their most successful movie tour promoting That's My Boy, audience members wouldn't leave their seats after the film, so Martin and Lewis began doing free shows afterwards on fire escapes or out their dressing room windows, basically just to lure them out on the street. It worked, and the streets became packed with adoring fans who couldn't get enough of this dynamic duo. But sometimes good things just come to an end. In the case of Martin and Lewis, it was a slow but steady progression that included frustration with the work, uneven praise for their contributions to the partnership, and differing priorities that would begin to drive a wedge between the two. The pace and the pressure of the tour soon began to take its toll. Dean usually had the thankless job of the straight man, essentially the joke setter upper, and his singing had not yet developed into that unique style of his later years. But the critics were praising Jerry, and while they admitted that Dean was the best partner he could possibly have, most of them claimed that Jerry was the real talent of the two and could easily succeed with anyone, which can't be a fun thing to hear when you're putting in a lot of work into something as well. After five years at Paramount and 16 films with Jerry, Dean was becoming tired of scripts limiting him to bland romantic leads, while parts of their films centered around Jerry's antics. He wanted to show the full breadth of his talent, and he couldn't do that with Jerry as a partner. The last straw came when Look Magazine gave Martin and Lewis a cover photo and then cropped Dean out of that picture. Dean soldered on to finish out his Paramount contract, but became increasingly disillusioned about his partnership with Jerry, leading to escalating arguments between the pair. The two could clearly no longer work together, especially after Dean angrily told Jerry that he was, quote, nothing to me but a fucking dollar sign. Jerry was a notorious workaholic, and the pace was wearing Dean out. He wasn't lazy by any stretch of the word, mind you, but sometimes Dean just wanted to golf while Jerry continued banging out on the career front. Dean left the partnership at his first opportunity following their farewell appearance at the Copacabana Club on July 25th, 1956, exactly 10 years after their first official teaming. Their final film together, Hollywood or Bust, was released that December. During the production of the film, the two weren't on speaking terms. Jerry would later cop this to his ego problems, describing himself in his memoir as a quote-unquote bully during this period. Martin and Lewis rarely spoke for the next 20 years. What would you do without me? What would you do, boy? What would you do without me when I'm gone? I'd sell my car and huck my ring and go right out and hire Babing. That's what I'd do without you. That's what I'd do. But tell me, what would you do without me? What would you do, boy? What would you do without me when I'm gone? I'd have no trouble replacing you. I'd just go down to the nearest zoo. That's what I'd do without you. That's what I'd do. We will be just, just like brothers, you and I. I. I'm for me, and I love you till I die. Oh, what would you do without me? What would you do, boy? What would you do without me when I'm gone? When my bankroll's gone and I need some dough, you're always telling me where to go. See, what would you do without me? What would you do? 
After the split, which neither would speak about publicly, Jerry and his wife Patty went to Las Vegas on vacation so Jerry could think about his next moves. He had always said he wanted to make audiences, quote, forget about Chaplin, and he needed to think about how to achieve that. According to his book, Dean and Me, Jerry said he was, quote, unable to put one foot in front of the other with any confidence. I was completely unnerved to be alone. While in Vegas, he received an urgent request from his friend Sid Luft, who was Judy Garland's husband and manager, saying that Judy couldn't perform that night in Vegas because of strep throat. Luft asked Jerry to step in. He hadn't sung solo in 25 years, but gave it a go. This performance would give him the confidence he needed to make it on his own. Jerry would soon record a pretty successful album. He stayed with Paramount until 1965, making a ton of movies for them. He also took a turn in the director's chair as well with films like The Nutty Professor from 1963. Jerry lived out his dreams. He acted, he sung, he directed, he performed. He got to do everything he wanted. Dean wanted to continue acting, though his first film post-Jerry, the 1957 romantic comedy 10,000 Bedrooms, was a big ol' flop. Like many comedians of the era, Dean, a renowned comedy actor, wanted to star in dramas. Dean did get his chance, but he had to take a pretty big pay cut to get it. The role was in The Young Lions, which released in 1958, and he starred alongside Montgomery Cliff and Marlon Brando. After that, the roles began rolling in. And by the beginning of the 1960s, Dean was a movie, recording, television, and nightclub star and would remain so pretty much for the rest of his life. He also found a new group to hang out with, the Rat Pack. Maybe you've heard of them? The group would perform live as well in movies like Ocean's Eleven throughout the 60s. We could go on and on about the Rat Pack, but that's not what we're here for. When I first started researching Martin and Lewis, who I truthfully did not know that much about, I kept reading in less prestigious articles that the two didn't speak for 20 years, but this isn't even close to true. The first public instance of the two appearing kind of together was in 1958, when Jerry was a guest on an episode of NBC's The Eddie Fisher Show and was bantering with Eddie when Dean emerged from behind a curtain and said, quote, Don't sing. Do what you want, but don't sing. Dean was immediately yanked back by fellow singer Bing Crosby. Martin said something else, but the rest of his words were drowned out by the wildly excited reaction from the audience. Whether it was planned or not is not clear, or if it was meant as malicious or not is not clear, but Jerry was a professional, and if it was meant to be malicious, he laughs it off like a pro after Dean disappeared. In fact, for this feud, it seems like absence made the heart grow fonder because once they were apart, while things were kind of like awkward and stiff between the two, it never seemed like mean. They never publicly disparaged the other. And if they ran into each other in public, they were seemingly quite civil. It's possible they went off stage and talked mad shit about each other, of course. But I gotta say, these were two classy dudes overall, at least pertaining to the feud. They There's some other stuff, but again, we're not getting into that this week. In 1960, four years after they broke up, Martin and Lewis briefly reunited, seemingly by coincidence, though might have just been a sneaky booker. Both were performing their own separate acts at the Sands Hotel in Las Vegas, a club they frequently played while they had been together. J. 
Jerry caught Dean's closing act, and Dean introduced his former partner to the audience, bringing him up on stage. For about 15 minutes, they joked a bit and sang a duet of Come Back to Me. Later in 1960, when Jerry was rushing to finish The Bellboy and was too exhausted to perform his stage act, Dean generously replaced him. The two were also filmed laughing together in 1961, outside Eddie Fisher's opening at the Coconut Grove nightclub in Los Angeles. The two men officially publicly reconciled in September 1976 after Frank Sinatra orchestrated a surprise appearance by Dean on Jerry's annual Labor Day telethon for the Muscular Dystrophy Association. Before introducing him, he said only, I have a friend who loves what you do every year. Jerry said later that he was completely shocked when Dean Martin came out. Dean, who had been hiding in Telethon co-host Ed McMahon's dressing room, crossed the stage and greeted his former partner with a hug and a kiss, eliciting a standing ovation from the audience. The two then bantered a bit, during which time Jerry asked Dean, quote, uh, so you working? The brief reunion was big national news, and according to Jerry, the two spoke, quote, every day after that. In 1987, Dean's son, Dean Paul Martin, was killed in a plane crash. Jerry attended the funeral unannounced, sat in the back, and did not reveal his presence to his former partner. According to Jerry's 2005 memoir, Dean and Me, and Deanna Martin's 2004 book, Memories Are Made of This, when Martin found out that Jerry was present at his son's funeral, he called Jerry and talked to him for about an hour. In 1989, the two reunited for the last time at Bally's Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas, where Martin was doing a week of shows for his 72nd birthday. Lewis presented him with a birthday cake, thanked him for all the years he gave joy to the world, and finally joked, quote, why we broke up, I'll never know. This would be the last public reunion of the duo before Dean's death on Christmas Day, 1995. Dean continued performing almost right until the bitter end. He had been diagnosed with lung cancer in 1993, but remained in the public eye until early 1995. Dean passed away on Christmas Day 1995 at the age of 78. It was 29 years to the day and almost to the minute after his mother died. Despite their animosity after the split, Lewis published an affectionate memoir of his partnership with Dean called Dean and Me, A Love Story in 2005. After Dean's death, Jerry began publicly talking quite fondly of his former partner, even taking blame for the falling out of their partnership. He also said that despite Dean's error of nonchalance over the years regarding their split, that, quote, Dean hurt desperately, and I felt guilty for not seeing that sooner. In his later years, Jerry suffered from heart issues and was also diagnosed with stage 1 diabetes, prostate cancer, and pulmonary fibrosis. He passed away at his home in Las Vegas, Nevada on August 20th, 2017, at the age of 91. Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis parted from this world on good terms, despite their initial departure being so acrimonious. Whether it was together or apart, however, the two left the world decades of their comedy, films, and music for everyone to enjoy for decades and hopefully centuries to come. Everybody loves somebody somehow Everybody falls in love somehow Something in your kiss just told me My sometime is now Everybody finds somebody someplace 
That's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, at Tinsel underscore Factory on Twitter, on Facebook at the Tinsel Factory. And if you have any questions, you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I am an independent podcast and I am relying on you, my listeners, to get my name and my podcast out there. So if you could please rate, review and subscribe and share it and just like, you know, when everyone goes, hey, what's your podcast you're listening to? Just say mine. It seems like a silly thing to ask for, but it makes all the difference in the world. Anything you can do to help would be awesome. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got merch. Check that out at the link in the show notes. Next week, the feud between director Orson Welles and newspaper tycoon William Randolph Hearst and the movie at its center. Whatever you've heard about this feud, it's so much worse. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap.